0: You guys can turn to Galatians chapter 2, that's where we'll be this morning. This is a, a pretty tough passage that we're looking at this morning. I'll just kind of warn you guys of that ahead of time. This is probably the toughest passage we've looked at so far in the book of Galatians. This is a tough passage for a couple reasons. First of all, it's tough to understand. This is one of the more difficult passages to interpret, but it's also tough emotionally. This is going to be one of the tougher passages we study emotionally for us because it's a very stressful passage. This passage is about one of the most serious confrontations that has ever happened in the church. In 2,000 years, this records one of the most stressful events. In the history of the church, one of the leaders of the church, Paul, is going to go toe to toe with the other leader of the church, actually the head leader of the church, Peter, and he is going to accuse Peter of heresy. He is going to publicly and personally condemn Peter to his face in the front of the whole church. As I was going through this this passage this week studying it, it it kind of felt very academic. I was really, uh, I was just kind of enmeshed in the interpretation of it. I'm afraid that that's kind of where we're going to be this morning, that we're not going to connect with the emotions of the passage. So let me give you an illustration of what's going on this morning. It's not an exaggeration to say that what's going on this morning is as if I and Brian were at odds with one another. I and Brian Fisher were studying and we were working in the text and and I saw some things about his interpretation that I didn't like. In fact, I saw some things that really worried me and I went back and I listened to Brian's messages and I looked at Brian's life and I concluded, Brian, you're leading people astray. I was really concerned about that. So after the service this morning, I get in my car and I drive over to the Anderson campus and in the middle of the 11 o'clock service as Brian is preaching, I walk up on the stage and I stop him and I get six inches from his face and I charge him, Brian Fisher, you are a heretic. That's what's going on this morning. Except Brian and I are just leaders of a local church. It's more as if I got up in Billy Graham's face, leader of the whole church in America in some senses, and charged him with heresy. That's what's going on this morning. As you read this passage, it's not just about theology. It's about a huge emotional explosion in the church as Paul goes toe-to-toe with Peter. Now, why did he do it? Why would Paul cause such incredible emotional stress and and frustration and confusion and and consternation in the church? Well, he'd do it because it's a really significant thing going on in the early church between Peter and Paul. We need to, to really dive into this. We need to look and see what was Peter doing that would merit such an incredibly strong rebuke from Paul. Let's look. We're going to start in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Now, Cephas is Peter's Aramaic name. It means Peter in Aramaic. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and to hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's Peter, in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now what's going on here? Let me give you some background. What is this about eating with Gentiles or not eating with Gentiles? Well, in the ancient world, there was a great deal of significance in who you chose to eat with. If you chose to eat with someone, you were communicating to the whole world that you accept this person. You, you want to have a relationship with this person. Eating with them means, I want you to know me and be with me. On the contrary, if you reject eating with a person, if you don't welcome them in your home to your table, you are rejecting them as a person. You're saying, I don't want to know you. I don't want to be with you. I don't accept you. It's kind of like the high school cafeteria. Okay, so put yourself back in high school. You're in the cafeteria. And, and there's certain tables that you can eat at, that you're accepted at. There's certain tables that you aren't. You can't sit at those tables because those people, they don't accept you. They're not willing for you to fellowship with them. Okay. Well, in the high school cafeteria of the ancient world, for Jews, the decision of who to let eat with you was very simple. Are you a Jew? You can sit at my table. Are you a Gentile? You can't. That's simple. Jew, you're in. Gentile, you're out. Now, there's one exception. If you, a Gentile, are willing to become a Jew, to be circumcised, to obey the Jewish law, to to act like a Jew, then you can sit at my table, but you've got to be kind of on the edge there. You can't really sit next to me because I don't really want to be around Gentiles. Gentiles are religiously unclean. No first century Jew would eat with a Gentile. That's why it was so shocking when Peter in Acts chapter 10 began to eat with Gentiles. Peter began to freely eat with any Gentiles. He'd go into their home. He'd welcome them into his home. He'd eat freely with them at the table. That was shocking. That was incredible. Peter was saying, hey, I accept you. I welcome you Gentiles into my fellowship. Come into my church. I want to have a relationship with you. But all that changed when Peter was in Antioch and men came from Jerusalem. Jewish men came down from Jerusalem. They came to Antioch, and we don't really know a lot about these men. We don't know what they said to Peter. All we know is they really didn't like what Peter was doing. They did not like that Peter was eating with Gentiles. I think that Peter's choice to eat with Gentiles was probably scandalous back in Jerusalem. The Jews were hearing about it, and it was scandalous that he would eat with Gentiles. That was crazy. So these men go, and they tell Peter, Peter, bro, you can't be doing this. You're making us look bad by going and eating with the Gentiles. That's shameful. Man, that's unpopular. You just can't do that. And Peter buys into it. Peter, out of fear for the party of the circumcision, out of fear for the opinions of the Jews, he withdraws from the Gentiles. He cuts off the Gentiles. He begins to reject the Gentiles. This is very significant. This isn't just about eating with them. It's about welcoming them in the church. He's saying, you're not welcome to be part of my church. You're not welcome to share communion with me. You're on the outside, Gentiles. Okay, now, Peter's a very influential figure in the early church, so it's not just him who does this. The rest of the Jews in Antioch, seeing Peter's action, they begin to withdraw from the Gentiles as well. All the Jews do it. Even Barnabas, Paul's best friend, withdraws from the Gentiles. And and Paul watches this, and it just really begins to bug him. It just really begins to hurt him because Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. He's the one who God entrusted to take the gospel to the Gentiles and bring the Gentiles into the church. And here this wall of separation is going up. Gentiles are being rejected. They're being pushed on the outside and Paul just can't take it anymore. And so one day he just explodes. He gets up on the stage in front of Peter and he rebukes him. He accuses Peter, and he accuses Peter of two things. There's really two accusations that Paul is leveling against Peter in this passage. The first is hypocrisy. He's saying, Peter and and all these guys following you, you guys are guilty of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is to play act. It's to do one thing but believe another. Well, Peter was the one who told us back in Acts chapter 10 that God does not consider any man unclean. The Jews and Gentiles alike can come into the church through faith. Peter, that's what you say, but look at what you do. You do something completely different. You do something that rejects the Gentiles, that pushes them on the outside. Peter, you're a hypocrite. But that's actually not the the biggest charge. That's not the most, most significant charge that Paul levels against Peter. The second thing he accuses Peter of far more serious is, Peter, you are distorting the gospel. That's verse 14. Peter, you are not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel. The the gospel proclaims that all human beings, men, women, boys, girls, children, adults, college students, the rest of us, Jew and Gentile alike, all of us are completely saved by faith alone. By faith alone in the work of Jesus alone, we're saved and brought into the church. That's the gospel. But Peter's actions were twisting it. They were distorting it. His actions were adding works back into the equation. His actions communicated to the Gentiles, hey, Gentiles, faith is a good start, but faith ain't enough. If you wanna be at my table, if you wanna be in my church, you gotta add to faith the works of the law. You gotta go be circumcised and you gotta obey the Jewish law. That's the only way you're welcome at my table. That's the only way you're welcome in my church. Peter's actions were distorting the gospel of grace by adding works back into the equation. Now, unfortunately, Peter's error has been repeated Countless times in the history of the church. Over the last 2,000 years, this is one of the primary errors that churches have made. This is actually the basis of our disagreement with the Roman Catholic Church. Roman Catholic Church and Protestants, how do we disagree? What is the biggest issue in our disagreement? It's this one. We believe that Roman Catholics add works back into the gospel. They bring them back into the equation. Now, back in the 1500s, when Protestants split off from Roman Catholics, Roman Catholics took that opportunity to clarify, to codify what they believe, what they teach in the Council of Trent. I have a couple quotations for you from Roman Catholicism in the Council of Trent. If anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, let him be anathema, cursed, damned. It's another quote. If anyone says that the sacraments of the new law are not necessary for salvation but are superfluous, let him be anathema. In other words, the Catholics are making the same mistake Peter did. They're, They're not using the old law, the Jewish law. They set that aside and instituted the new law, what the Catholics call the sacramental system. If you want to be saved, faith is part of the equation, but you also have to add baptism and you have to add the Eucharist and you have to add confession and penance and all the others if you want to be saved. The the gospel, according to Roman Catholicism, is the same mistake that Peter was making. Faith is not enough. We have to add our works back in. Now, I, I want to be really clear for a moment. Roman Catholicism has many genuine believers within it. There are many believers in the Roman Catholic Church. What I'm saying is the official doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church is an error. They have confused the gospel. They have distorted the gospel by bringing works back into the equation. Faith is a great start, but it's not enough. It doesn't get you there. You have to add your works. They're making the same mistake Peter was. And that's very serious. To Paul, there's nothing more important than getting the gospel right, than being clear about the gospel. That's the most important thing we need to be clear about in our lives is the truth of the gospel. We have to keep the gospel pure, that our works do not enter into the equation. And so Paul uses this public rebuke of Peter, this incredibly confrontational, stressful situation, he uses it as an opportunity to reclarify the gospel. Verses 15 and 16, Paul says, let me just make sure that we're all on the same page. Here is the gospel as clearly as I can present it. Look with me at verse 15. We're gonna look at Paul's response to Peter's error. Verse 15, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. In other words, Paul is saying, Peter, you and I, we've been obeying the law since birth. We We are Jews by birth. We've been obeying the law. We've been seeking to please God through the law since birth. We're not We're not sinners from among the Gentiles. That was actually a Jewish put down towards Gentiles. Gentiles don't have the law. They're sinners in God. We're not like them. We're, We're ones who've been obeying the law since birth. So Peter, if you would expect anyone to be able to earn points with God through obedience to the law, it would be you and me. It would be us. But what have we found? Verse 16 Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Now to understand the gospel as Paul presents it in verse 16, we have to define one of the most important words you'll ever find in the Bible, justified. It appears for the first time in Galatians in our passage, Paul actually uses it five times here. It's translated either justified or righteousness. Uh, What justified means as a verb is to receive a favorable verdict, to conform to a standard. To be justified means you measure up to a standard that someone sets. Um, to, To illustrate justification, it's like when you were a student. And you had a class and, and you wanted to be declared an A student in that class. You wanted to, to get an A in that class. Well, to get an A, there were certain requirements you had to meet. There was a standard you had to live up to. You had to do homework. You had to take your tests and score a certain percentage on them. You had to do projects. You had to do certain things to merit an A. That's the idea of justification. If you met the standard, your teacher declared you an A student. That's justification. Now, whenever you see the verb justify or the noun justification in the Bible, you need to ask, who is the judge? Who's determining whether or not I meet the standard? In this passage, it's God. And whenever God is the one doing the justifying, we're talking about something that is permanent. God never goes back on his word. He never changes his word. And so if God declares us just, we are forever just. Justification by God is permanent. If we meet his standard, we forever meet his standard. So let's ask, what is the standard of God? If I want to earn God's justification, if I want to be justified, what does God expect of me? What's his standard? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew five forty eight: therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. God's standard, the, the ruler to which he measures us is perfection. If you want to earn justification, you must be perfect. Actually, the the standard that God expects is actually his own character. God is his own standard. You must be as perfect as God to merit justification. Absolutely perfect in every way. Now, that's a surprise to a lot of people. If you ask the average American, how good do you have to be for God to accept you? Well, they're going to think of a continuum and they're going to think, well, Mother Teresa's here and, and Hitler's over here. And if I'm at least halfway on Mother Teresa's side, then I'm good. God will declare me good. Okay, but the Bible actually declares, well, Mother Teresa, Mother Teresa's nothing. Actually, if you want to be good in God's sight, the standard's somewhere over there in Oklahoma, it's, it's absolute perfection. It's as perfect as God himself. That's how perfect you must be to merit justification. Okay, so what do we have to do? What is our way to be justified? How do I measure up to God's perfect standard? Can the law get me there? Can my obedience to rules and regulations make me perfect in God's sight? Well, Paul says, no, no way. The law can't get you there. He's incredibly clear about that. Verse 16 again, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, then the end of the verse, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. The Jews had proven for 2,000 years before Paul wrote Galatians that no one can earn God's standard of perfection through the law, through their obedience. One of the most godly men in the whole Old Testament said it well, Isaiah, a prophet of the Old Testament, said, for all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Isaiah was incredibly righteous, but he's saying compared to the law of God, compared to the standard of God's perfection, even our best day, even our most righteous day falls incredibly short. It is like filth in God's eyes we fall so short of his standard. The law can't justify anyone. All the law does is prove how unworthy we are of God's justification. It just proves what sinners we are. The law is a dead end. It can't get us there. We need a new way. We need another way to find justification, to measure up to God's standard. Paul gives us that way. It is faith. That is the answer. The law can't get us there. What can get us there is faith. Now, the the NAS, a lot of you are looking at the NAS translation. I don't think it's the best translation of this verse. Two times we see the phrase, faith in Christ. I think really the way to translate that is Christ's faithfulness. Those phrases aren't about our faith in Christ. It's about Christ's faithfulness to God. So let me reread the verse for you as I think it should be translated. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through the faithfulness of Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by Christ's faithfulness and not by the works of the law. In other words, the way that we measure up to justification is not through our faithfulness to God, it's through Christ's faithfulness to God. The only way to measure up, the only way to be justified is perfection, and all of us fell short. All of us have blown it. There is only one human being who has ever earned God's justification, who has ever lived up to God's standard, and that's Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 7 says, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy and innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Jesus is the only human being to never sin. He lived an absolutely obedient life to God. His obedience culminated on the cross. Jesus' ultimate act of obedience to the Father, he sacrifices his own life. So Jesus is the one and only human being to earn justification. He did what we could not. But the great news of the gospel is that God offers us the justification that Jesus earned by faith. He freely offers us Jesus' righteousness. All we have to do is receive it through faith. How do we find justification? Not through works, but through belief in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. A couple of weeks ago, I shared with you a courtroom analogy of the gospel. The the, the gospel looks at the the universe as a big courtroom where God, the Father, Son, and Spirit are up on the bench and they are judging humanity. And we stand before God and every one of us stands condemned. we, We know we're condemned. We know we've fallen short of God's standard. We know that we're worthy of God's wrath, His punishment, But then God the Son stands up, takes off his robe, walks down and stands next to us and God the Son says to God the Father, I willingly take their sins and in exchange I give them my righteousness. And all they have to do is simply receive it. Jesus holds it out. All we do is in faith receive his righteousness from him. We give him our sins, we take his righteousness and then God the Father looks down and at that moment of faith, when we receive the righteousness of Christ, God the Father slams his, his gavel on the bench and declares for all the universe to hear, this person is now justified. When I look at them, I no longer see their sin. I see the perfect righteousness of my son. They are forever justified. I declare them righteous. They are forever righteous. They will spend eternity in heaven with me because they've measured up. Not through their works, quite the contrary. They measure up through the work of Jesus. That's the gospel. We are not justified by our works. We don't add anything to the gospel by our works. It's all about the work of Jesus. Jesus did it. He earned perfect righteousness. He died for our sins and he gives us his perfect righteousness by faith alone. It comes through faith alone. Now, every time that Paul presented that gospel, wherever he went, whenever he told people that you are saved by faith alone and the work of Christ alone, people objected. They heard Paul's message and and they objected. They said, wait, Paul, if, if you say that we are saved by faith alone, apart from any works that we do, Paul, that's, that's too easy. When, when people hear that the gospel is by faith alone, that all you have to do to be saved is simply believe, people get nervous. They think, wait a minute, if all a person has to do is just believe that Jesus died for them and rose from the dead, what is to keep that person from going out and sinning? What's to keep that person from going out and living a sinful life if they're really saved by faith alone? That is the objection the gospel should always get. If you are presenting the gospel accurately, the person should object. It can't be that easy. If it's that easy, what's to keep me from sinning? That's the objection Paul always got and he gets it again in verse 17. Verse 17 is an objection But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? Okay, this is a tough verse to interpret. It's really Paul is speaking for his opponents. Here's what his opponents are saying. They're saying, Paul, you tell people that they should seek justification by faith alone in Jesus alone. You don't put the law on them. They don't have to do anything in terms of the law, in terms of works to earn justification. Paul, they're just going to use that to go out in sin. They're just going to use that as an excuse for sin. And by doing that, they're going to turn Jesus into an excuse for sin. The gospel of grace, the gospel of what Jesus did is just going to become an excuse for sin. Paul, that's why you got to go back to the law. Paul, that's why faith isn't enough. You need to put the law on people's backs so that they know they can't go back to sin, so that they feel the weight of the law and they turn from sin. Paul's opponents, whether it be Peter, whether it be these men from Jerusalem, whether it be these teachers out in Galatia, they always wanted to add the law back in as a solution to sin. If you tell people it's by faith alone, they're going to take advantage of the gospel and they're going to go keep sinning. So you've got to add works back in. You've got to require them to work for salvation or they're going to take advantage of the gospel. Okay, that's actually exactly the charge that the Roman Catholic Church leveled against Protestants. When Luther broke off from the Roman Catholic Church and proclaimed that the gospel is salvation by faith alone and the work of Christ alone, the Roman Catholic Church objected. They said, Luther, that's too easy. Luther, if you tell people they're saved by faith alone, they're just going to keep on sinning. Luther, you've got to add the law back in. That's how people always object to the gospel. Well, Paul responds to that objection in the next four verses. And the next four verses are really a a summary of the whole rest of the book of Galatians. You have in these four verses kind of a a summary form of the next three chapters, three, four, five, are going to basically flesh out this summary. So we're just going to cover this in brief this morning and then expand it in the weeks to come. Paul starts by responding, may it never be. That's Paul's way of saying, no way. Christ is not an excuse for sin. The gospel is not an excuse for sin. And the law is not a solution to sin. You guys are wrong in both points. Christ doesn't lead you to sin. The law doesn't fix sin. Here's why. Let's start verse 18. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Paul's point here is basically the the law can't conquer sin. The law was never able to lead you to righteousness. The law was never able to overcome sin. The law never helped you obey God. It just showed you how bad you were. That's all the law is good for. It shows you how bad you are. It reveals how far you fall short. So if the law always only shows us how bad we are, why would we put ourselves back under the law? We're freed from the law. Why would we put ourselves back under it? Why would we rebuild it as our authority in life when all the law ever did was show you how bad you were? It just proved that you were a lawbreaker. That leads to Paul's point in verse 19. He says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Paul's not against the law. Paul loves the law. Paul says the law is incredibly valuable to us. He'll make that point in chapter three. The law is incredibly valuable to humanity before they believe in the gospel. For unbelievers, the law is incredibly valuable because the law puts them to death. That's the purpose of the law in our lives. Before we come to faith in Jesus, the law shows us how desperately we need him. The law condemns unbelievers. It demonstrates how far they fall short of God's perfect standard of righteousness. That's what it did for Paul. Before Paul met Jesus, the law put him to death. It demonstrated that he stood condemned, that he stood guilty in the courtroom of God. The purpose of the law, the godly use of the law is when an unbeliever reads the law of God and concludes, oh God, help me. God help me, I fall so far short, there's nothing I can do. I can't measure up. The godly use of the law is that when it drives an unbeliever to their knees to cry out to God for help, for salvation through Jesus Christ. That's what the law is about, It's to show us how desperately we need Jesus. But, but once it accomplishes that purpose, once the law puts us to death, once it shows us how condemned we are, then we're done with the law. We don't need the law anymore. It has served its godly purpose in our lives. The person we were, the person who was under the condemnation of the law, that person is dead. We live a new life. That's what Paul wants to flesh out in verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul starts with one of the most famous and significant phrases in your Bible, I have been crucified with Christ. When you accepted the gospel, when you trusted in Jesus as your savior, God placed you in Jesus on the cross. You don't feel that way. It doesn't feel like you were hanging on the cross. You don't feel holes in your hands and in your feet, but it's true. You hung on the cross with Jesus. The old you is dead The you that was a slave of sin, the you that was a a slave of the law, the you that could not please God, that person is dead. You are now a new person. You have new life through faith in Jesus Christ. And this new life is radically different from the old life you had. The old life was all about you. Before I met Jesus, life was all about me, what I could do, how I was trying to earn my way to God, how I was trying to please God through my works, through my church attendance, stuff like that. That me is dead. Now my new life isn't about me. It's all about Christ. The Christian life, the life of a believer, it's not about us. It's not about what we do and our power and our strength to please God. The new life is all about Jesus in us. That's the answer to sin. Everywhere that Paul preached the gospel, people charged, you got to keep the law. That's how you keep people from sinning. Paul says, no, the law is not a solution to sin. The solution to sin is Christ in us. The only solution to sin is letting Christ live in us. Letting Christ live through us, transforming us, making us more like him. That's God's solution to sin. We don't need the law because we have God in us. The supernaturally powerful, almighty creator of heaven and earth is living in you. Just let him do his stuff. Let him work in you. Don't try to work to please God. Let Christ live in you. That's the solution to sin. Now, how do we let Christ live in us? How do we let Christ live through us? Well, through faith. Paul says it's by faith in Christ working in me. A lot of us, when we think about faith, we think that faith is that thing I used Back years ago when I accepted the gospel, that's what faith was about. I I, I trusted in Jesus as my Savior. That was faith. Now faith is set aside and I'm on to other things. That's not how the Bible looks at it. When you accepted the gospel, that was just the beginning of faith. That was just the first act of faith. Faith is something that God calls us to continue to exercise more and more throughout the course of our lives. The Christian life is a life of faith, faith that grows, faith that expands and enlarges. The way you live your life is not by putting yourself under the law, trying to please God in your own efforts. The way you live the Christian life is moment by moment dependent faith in Christ. That's the answer to sin. That's the way we please God is moment by moment trusting that Jesus really does live inside of you, that he really can transform you, that he really did love you enough to give himself for you, to die for you. If he loved me enough to die for me, surely he loves me enough to grow me. To transform me to change my life to make me holy the life of the christian is not a life of of law of rules and regulations it is a life of faith i trust in jesus to produce good works in me i trust in jesus to produce the fruit of the spirit in me love joy peace patience goodness kindness self-control he manifests that through my life by faith not by works Okay, now Paul will expand that. That's the second half of chapter five. He'll use a different phrase there for this lifestyle. He'll call it walking by the spirit. That's the life of faith. I'm walking in dependent faith on the power of God's spirit in me. Okay, I hope Paul has made the point to us that there's no reason to return to the law. We don't need the law. We have God himself in us. That's where we should be turning. In fact, for a believer, even though the law was good for an unbeliever, it's dangerous for us. The law is bad for us. It is toxic to us. Paul tells us why in verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Paul tells us two dangers of the law here. Number one, if I put myself back under the law as my master, if I submit myself to rules and regulations, what I'm doing is cutting myself off from the grace of Jesus Christ. That's not that I'm losing my salvation. I'm cutting myself off from the grace of Christ's power in me. Basically, what you're doing if you resubmit yourself to the law, if you resubmit yourself to trying to earn God's approval through your works, what you're really saying is, Jesus, um, I'm not content with you running my life. I'm not content with you living out in my life. I'm going to push you aside and I'm going to make my life work through my obedience, through my effort. You're cutting yourself off from the power of Christ's work in your life, his grace in your life when you resubmit yourself to the law and to rules and to regulations. That's the first danger of the law. Second danger is that when we resubmit ourselves to the law, when we resubmit ourselves to rules and regulations, we diminish the value of the work of Jesus Christ. We diss Jesus Christ when we put ourselves back under rules and regulations and the law because what we're saying to the world is, hey, Jesus was a great start. His death on the cross, that was a good thing, but it wasn't enough. I've got to add to it. That that I think is the, the greatest danger of Roman Catholicism. It says the death of Jesus wasn't enough. It's great, but it wasn't enough. We've got to add to it. We've got to bring our works back in. We've got to add our works of obedience to it because Jesus' death wasn't enough. Jesus really died in vain because I've still got to do it on my own. I've still got to work to please God. That's what we do when we live a life of law, of works, rather than a life of faith. It's incredibly serious. Paul wants us to understand in no uncertain terms that any human being, Jew or Gentile, man or woman, student or adult, young or old, all of us are justified, are declared 100% eternally righteous in God's sight through faith alone in the faithful work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's how justification happens, by believing that Jesus died for us and rose from the dead. When you believe that, you are forever, eternally, perfectly righteous. You never add to that. You can't add to that. It's already 100%. You're completely justified by faith alone and the work of Christ alone. To summarize, to to end this, I would turn to the the book of Romans, Paul's other huge defense of the truth of justification by faith alone. Paul says, Romans 3.28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. It's all by faith apart from the works. Your works don't add anything to it. That's our answer to Peter's error. Now, the challenge for us is that so far we've only looked at the writings of Paul. It would not be fair to call out the Roman Catholic Church and only look at the works of Paul. You see, they're going to rely on a different author of Scripture, a different book of Scripture, a very contentious and difficult book of Scripture. They're going to defend their beliefs by turning to what? The book of James, James chapter 2, where James says, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Man, what do you do with that? Are they not totally contradicting each other? Was there a war going on in the early church between Paul and his folks and James and his folks? It it is James who sent these men, it would appear, who led Peter astray. Do we have a a contradiction between these two apostles, between these two leaders? Do we need to pick one over the other? It's a good question. I'm going to answer it next week. Next week, we're gonna take a break from Galatians and we're gonna study James chapter two, verses 14 to 26. We're gonna dive in deep and we're gonna look at what's going on in that passage. Is James contradicting Paul or are they complimenting one another? Now, I'll warn you, our study next week, our sermon next week is gonna be incredibly challenging and it will be controversial. As we go through next week, I'm gonna show not only, I believe, at least from our view, that the Roman Catholic Church has misinterpreted James 2, I'm going to tell you that I think most Protestants have misinterpreted James 2. I'm going to tell you that I think Luther and Calvin both missed the mark on James 2. I'm going to tell you that a lot of great leaders of the evangelical church today, guys like John Piper, have missed the point of James 2. And because they've misinterpreted it, they too have confused the gospel. Perhaps not as badly as the Roman Catholic Church, but they too have clouded the gospel with works. They've, they've brought the shadow of works back in because they've missed the point of James chapter two. So next week will be controversial. I promise you, you will stay awake. <laughs> we'll look at this passage in depth. Now, there's no way that you can study James two and, and that you can call out and, 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 and confront Roman Catholicism and, and the Protestants and Calvinism and Arminianism and not dredge up a lot of questions. So next week, we're going to do something a little different. After the sermon, I'm going to give you guys about a five-minute break next week. You can go stretch your legs, get water, get your kids, and then if you want, we're going to meet back in here after the sermon next week for an extended Q&A. You can ask me anything, anything about faith and works, James 2, Romans. You can ask me about Catholicism, Protestantism, Arminianism, Calvinism, any of these things. I'll do my best to answer them. We'll just have an extended Q&A because I want you guys to be clear on the gospel, I want you to be absolutely crystal clear on the message of the gospel. These are huge issues at stake. So next week, come back for a Q&A. Now, my, my assignment for you guys this week, my takeaway that I want you guys to do over the course of the next week is prepare a little bit for the sermon next week by reading ahead. I, I want to ask you guys at some point this week, if you will, set aside a little bit of time to read Romans 3 and 4 and James 2. Please, just it won't take you long. Read Romans chapters 3 and 4. Read James chapter two. If you have enough time, go ahead and read the whole book of James. It's only five chapters. If you read the whole book, it'll give you a much better understanding of where James is going. If you guys will read these chapters, it will prepare you for next week. You'll get a lot more out of the sermon if you read ahead. Now, if you do have the chance to read the book of James, I wanna ask you to to kind of think about two questions. These are essential questions, incredibly important questions if you're gonna interpret James two correctly. Number one, who was James' audience? Who was James writing to? Was he writing to believers or unbelievers? If he was writing to believers, were they mature or immature believers? You gotta first figure out who's the audience, and then second, figure out why was James writing? What are the problems, what are the issues that his audience faced that motivated James to write them? if, If you can answer those two questions, you're halfway there to the right interpretation of chapter two. So if you guys will take some time this week to prepare by reading and meditating on these things. It'll really bless us and help us next week. Now, I wanna close by turning the Lord in prayer and, and I, wanna, I wanna ask him to help us to be clear about the gospel and to be bold about the gospel. Paul was willing to cause one of the biggest controversies in the history of the church because the gospel's worth it. I wanna pray that God will help us to believe that and to go out and to share the gospel boldly and clearly. Let me close us in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you so much for the clear and compelling and powerful truths of the gospel that we are saved by faith alone in the work of Jesus alone. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for setting us free from the penalty of our sin, not by our works, but by the work of Jesus. Thank you for delivering us. Thank you that we are forever, eternally justified in your sight by faith alone and the faithfulness of Jesus alone. Lord, our words don't come close to thanking you enough for that. We would have no hope apart from what Jesus did. Thank you so much. We pray, Lord, that we would be clear about the gospel and we pray that we'd be bold, Lord, that we'd go from here believing that the gospel is the one and only hope for mankind, that no human being can know you apart from faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Please help us to be bold, to go out and share that news with everyone we see, to be clear, to be compelling, to go out and share our testimony and tell them of what Jesus has done for us. Please, Lord, help us to share your gospel, all for your glory and for the transformation of men and women. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.